Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome to episode 50 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The Main Man philosophy was to provide financial support and guidance that enabled their artists to fully explore their creative freedom, while pioneering outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagances and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. Girls like boys who look pretty. It's just one of those things. They don't like smelly men. Funnily enough, it's a strange thing. They really don't care for it. So I kept thinking to myself, if they just look like beautiful boy dolls on stage, it'll be perfect. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Lou Reed, Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, and David Bowie. Well, very few of my things have taken place. Well, some of them have now, but not when I write them, they don't. Fifty years ago, Bowie began the first leg of his UK tour, previewing tracks from the new Ziggy Stardust album that had only just been completed. The first concert was on January 29, 1972, at Friars Club in Aylesbury. This was the first time that Bowie and the band appeared on stage, sporting their exciting new look inspired by William S. Burroughs' The Wild Boys and Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. In this episode, five people who were at that concert recall the excitement of that debut performance, including the band's drummer Woody Woodmansey, bass player Trevor Boulder, their publicist Anya Wilson, artist George Underwood, and first up, David's manager, Tony DeFries. Going back to the first public performance of Ziggy, Ziggy came out at Friars Aylesbury, a club that we knew and he knew on the outskirts of London, that had an audience that were most likely to be sympathetic and indeed supportive of what we were doing. Although, since nobody had ever done this before, we didn't really know what reaction we would get. But one thing's certain, without rehearsals and rehearsals and rehearsals, we would not have got the impact, we would not have got the effect And we would not have got that moment, which was a massively important moment, when David becomes Ziggy on stage. The first time that any performing singer, songwriter, musician ever became a completely alien, new and unknown character on stage. One of the key points of getting there, which I often stress, but you can't really stress this enough, is that anything you want to work very, very well needs a great deal of preparation. And in David's case, and in the case of these lads from Hull, who'd never done this before, rehearsal. Now, of course, they'd rehearsed almost all of these songs, either for Hunky Dory or for Ziggy, so they knew what they were playing. We'd rehearsed 
the set list many, many, many times so that everybody knew what they were going to play when, so there were no uh, technical issues of who's going to come in and where they're going to come in. That didn't prevent, of course, the occasional problem. David's pick up on his acoustic guitar fell off quite early on <laughs> and had to be quickly taped back on by, I think Pete Hunsley was the attendant roadie on the day, but whoever it was, they had to do a very quick job of taping it back on so David could go back to playing. Woody, our drummer, before we got on stage, was quite specific about, I'm not bloody wearing that. <laughs> and there are a lot of nerves the band were nervous. They'd never done this before. They'd never seen anybody else do it before. And although they'd done it in rehearsal, and they had small audiences, mostly our staff and my girlfriends and other people who we brought along, but we'd been working this out at the Theatre Royal, for example, for over a week, day after day after day, long hours, constantly playing the same songs, constantly doing the same things and they ought to have been very well prepared but here we have more than 800 people and they don't know how they're going to respond off stage in the tiny dressing room facilities at Aylesbury we've got Angela busy trying to mascara the boys eyelashes and Ronson says give me that I'll do it my bloody self <laughs> And he does a very good job of it, actually, even though it's probably the first time he's ever put mascara on. But this is how things were. There was a lot of nervous anxiety and nervous energy before they got on stage. And they didn't feel comfortable in their stage clothes. David did. He was used to this. He'd done mime. He'd done acting. He was OK. He was Ziggy. The lads from Hull were like, what are we doing here? How are people going to look at us? What's going to happen? But once they got on stage and the audience, particularly the girls in the audience, were going crazy for them, everything changed. So within a few days it was, I'm going to wear the red ones tonight. And this is why I needed to be a bit of a slave driver, or perhaps a slave driver, in all those weeks leading up to this. Because after this gig, after the reception for this gig, there was no more uncertainty. There was no more argument about whether or not we should play a particular place at a particular time. Everybody, David, Angela, the band, and all the people engaged, realised that if they just followed what I proposed, we would have the record deal, the concerts, the support, the audience, and ultimately a huge level of success. And this first airing of this concert and this concept and these songs had an audience reception that they'd never had before and that very few bands who weren't already famous ever got 
I'm only going to touch briefly on the opening band who went on before us. Grand Canyon, an instantly forgettable band. In fact, it's impossible to find any reference to them now. And they were also one of the reasons that I had said, and I continue to say, and now it became an absolute rule, we do not have opening acts. And it wasn't until we got to the Rainbow later on that year, at David's suggestion, I agreed to have Roxy Music, who were pretty much a new band then, open for us. So Brian and Brian, Ferry and Eno, and a few other folk were the band. And they were given a very specific time to sound check, and they overran. And I said to them, you know, you can't overrun, and if you overrun in your opening, I'll unplug you. And they did, and I duly unplugged them. And they were not happy with me at all. In fact, I don't think Brian Eno ever spoke to me again. <laughs> A lot of other things happened that night. One of the things that happened was that Roger Taylor and Freddie Mercury came down with Roger driving his little Mini Cooper and Freddie Mercury visibly shaking in the passenger seat <laughs> to see the Aylesbury concert. Honestly, I didn't look for them because I didn't know they were there and don't recall seeing them there. But they, and especially Roger, very specifically recall seeing them there. And Mick Rock, who took pictures of them, remembers that Freddie was absolutely overwhelmed by seeing David and seeing what he did on stage, it made a huge impact on him because it gave him the opportunity to be Freddie, to go on and do outrageous stuff. And because he did do outrageous stuff and he was really good at it, Queen got very, very successful. These are some of the things that happened. Others not so good. Before the audience had filled up, but as they were streaming in, and they were streaming in, Mick was still on stage fiddling with his pedals. And this was something we'd encountered in rehearsal, and we went on encountering actually for quite a long time. Ronson was an excellent and intuitive guitar player. He knew although he could never explain it, that if he got his reference position right relative to his amps and the speakers and his guitar, he'd be able to achieve sounds that were otherwise very hard to reach. This is something that Jimi Hendrix also understood, but never really vocalised. It's an intuitive relationship between a musician and an instrument. But the problem for us was that we needed Mick to be front of stage. 
And especially when he was working with David one-on-one, where they were singing together, where they were singing and playing together, where they had this Mick and Keith kind of relationship, which they did have, Mick couldn't be back of stage fooling around with his amplifier. He had to be front of stage playing guitar. That was a huge problem. We found it was a huge problem in rehearsals, and it didn't actually go away, and it went on being a problem through the next round of performances. And eventually, we taped his pedals to the stage before the performance so that he couldn't move them and that he had to effectively stay front of stage in order to operate the pedals. Couldn't operate them remotely, which meant that Whatever his amp was at when we started, that's what it stayed at, unless he found an opportunity to change it in the break. But there weren't any breaks in this performance, certainly not at ours, but it was one on all performance. He did take over, I say Rono did take over, the piano for Life on Mars. And he did a marvellous job of it, as usual. But those kinds of things are what I remember, and of course the fact that the take for Aylesbury, the payout for Aylesbury was £150, which got diminished by agency fees, which allowed the Friars Club to make a little bit of money, but didn't remotely pay for any of our costs of even getting there, never mind the previous work. There was no money to be made doing live performances in the UK or indeed anywhere else. If you couldn't sell records, if you couldn't sell out enormous venues, and if you weren't the headliner, you couldn't expect to make any money performing. It's fair to say that David was always in deficit in terms of live performances right up until we got to large American venues, even in the largest English venues at the time was very, very hard to make it pay off considering the amount of equipment you had to bring in and the number of people you had to have on stage and the amount of work you had to do to get there in the first instance. For David and Angela and the band, this was a complete change from everything David had done before and did set the stage as a pun, for what would come in the future. Here's the Spiders drummer Woody Woodmansey with his recollections of that early Ziggy period. The first Ziggy stuff, the clothes and that, there was nothing around that looked like that, really, especially in the north, <laughs> you know. It was donkey jackets and boots and... No, it wasn't that bad. The first thing that struck me was, this guy means it. He means it. He's going for it and he's not. he just doesn't want to be a rock and roll star. He wants to be like a James Dean or something. It's above that. It's a it's a Marilyn Monroe. It's a James Dean. It's a. He's not really a rock and roller, but he's got it and he knows he knows what it is, and and it, you know, in those days of putting bands together, you were looking for people that could think big enough, especially in in the north. Could you put a bunch of musicians together, that did think big enough to go? We can do it. And and we and, and he was living it was David. He was being you know, he was writing, he was into clothes and 
listening to music, the whole the whole creation that was going on was we're doing it. He had a, a lounge at Adam Hall and he'd go, Woody, come in, I've just finished one and he'd just sit and play it. You know. You go, Ooh yeah, that's good. You know, and then a couple of days later, going the where the piano was, just finished this one, you know. Oh yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't that poppy poppy no credibility thing. I mean, I always thought Hunky Dory was David going, I'll show him I can write. You know, like a songwriter's album. That's how it felt at the time. You know, it was the songs were the thing, were the message. Mm. And, and I think it did that. And that was the groundwork, really. It primed up um, the fact he can write. And then Peter Noon did pretty things, and that was a success. So it was all adding to the the ability proving he could write. Um, the Ziggy thing, um, we, we kind of saw him as a folk guitarist and we were a rock band. So it was like, we always had to figure out how do you turn this acoustic folk track into a rock track without, and being sympathetic to the song and getting the song across. We then started, he, he would play as, he played as uh, Velvet Underground early stuff, which musically was not really up our street, just because of the, I guess the expertise of the playing wasn't what we'd been used to. It wasn't kind of where we were going. Um, but the feel, there was something in the, the atmosphere that those early Velvet Underground tracks created even though it was like maybe three chords and it was just banged out, it had a, it had a almost like a like the punk thing had. It just had okay, this is communicating, this is creating something. It's going somewhere a bit dirgy, a bit the bad side. It's doing that. We have to kind of capture that. So when we did things like Queen Bitch, we kind of pulled more on the atmosphere for those for that track, but still put more musicality in than, say, the Velvets did. He would come in, play a song. Sometimes in the studio, you'd, you'd go, OK, we've rehearsed a few for the studio. You'd get in the studio and go, we're not doing those, we're not doing that one, we're doing this, and he'd play it straight off. And he'd go, have you got it? And you'd go, I've only heard it once. You know, we'd be going, what does it end on, chorus? What's, is there a middle eight? Don't know. Should I go to cymbal at the end? Let me, uh, OK. And he'd go, is it rolling, Ken? And you go, oh, pfft, you know? And he never liked doing more than three takes, right? It, there was never any discussion about this, that, or the other. It was just play. I think we all approached it, or I certainly did, always from song, regardless of what you ended up playing. It was like, what does the song need? I'd learn overplay on Man of Soul the World. You know, I'd kind of got all the riffs and licks and, and everything out of my head by that and probably Mick had as well. And we'd started listening to uh, Neil Young, uh, Crazy Horse, Lennon, um, Velvet Underground, and realised there was another approach out there. It was, it was, uh, there was one track that Neil Young did, and the guy didn't hit the cymbal until the last chorus, right? But when he hit it, it was at the exact right point, and he just went, oh, that is so nice. And it, and it kind of got me into thinking, some t a lot of the times, you, we play too much. 
even on Kidori and Ziggy to a degree, there was always an economical approach to it. And it was just take each track and give it, you know, the best treatment you could really. And and because it was going more rocky, it was it was better for us, it was easier for us. Um, we liked it more. And it was really when it was finished that we started getting into the presenting it. And then the, the whole concept of uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spies from Mars. Because uh, we kind of didn't want to be a band of musicians individually behind David Bowie. So when we started gigging, I just went, no, we're not going out there without an identity. So I got my bass drum and I got um, Airfix Black. You know, when you paint aeroplanes, I got that and I just wrote, you know, the spiders on the front, put it on my bed. And he came, he walked on the next gig and saw it and he went, it was a shock, you know. Um, and he didn't say anything. From the Main Man archive, here's bass player Trevor Boulder reminiscing about the period that inspired Ziggy. He came back from going to America and, and he, I think uh, Iggy had a big influence on him. You know, he'd seen Iggy perform or something and he thought, well, the punk, punkish thing is the way to go, you know, to, to, to make a, a stamp on the music ingredient and to change his image and change what was going on. Because at the time there was a lot of folk music about, wasn't there, you know, um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, all that sort of stuff was going about. And he just saw it that the, the music industry was a bit boring. Uh, and he thought he'd really turn it around. And, of course, he used his theatrical side as well, didn't he? You know, I mean, he was an actor, a mime artist, you know, uh, and he used all that. And Angie was a driving force behind him. She really was. She was the energy uh, in the engine room that pushed him as well. You know, he wrote the songs, but she, she, she came up with a lot of the ideas and pushed him along. We used to set up our own equipment. We used to drive to gigs on all together. You know, in the in the car in the van, and, and Angie used to do the lights. She used to set the lights up and stuff. So we were a band, and we used to play pubs, and there would be like four or five people in there in the audience, and we were dressed up in all the ziggy gear. You know, so I mean, we were a band, and we went out as a band, and we f it felt like a band. And he was the lead singer in the band, and he wrote the songs. Um, we were the rest of the you know we were the, the engine room behind him. Most of the time in the studio, he would just walk in with an acoustic guitar. I mean, Unky Dory was the same. He just walked in with the acoustic, sat down with the acoustic guitar, and he plays the song. And of course, you're all sitting there writing chords out, you know, like, what's that? What's, what's he playing there? You know? So you get the chords together, the verse, chorus, and middle eight, or whatever. And then you run through it a couple of times, and then it's like red light time. Let's go. He didn't like he didn't like to hang around and get things absolutely perfect. He wanted the, the raw edge to it, especially on Ziggy, you know, it was just go for it. it was not like we're gonna do this or we're gonna dress up like that. It was just let's do the album first. So we went in and did it and all we thought was it was just another album, you know, he's just doing this other but then he started to talk about well I we wanna do this, I wanna do that, I wanna change things. He took us to see Alice Cooper at the Rainbow. And I always remember, and Alice Cooper was great, we, we all loved it, you know, it was a brilliant show. And I remember walking out and he says, oh, we'll be bigger than them. We'll do better than that. We can do better than that. And then he started to explain that he wanted us to change and then wear the costumes. But we'd been to see uh, Clockwork Orange and he wanted us to dress uh, in like the boiler suits, but colourful with the boots. You know, everybody thought that uh, we were dressing like spacemen, but we weren't. We, they called them droogs, I think. We we were actually modelled on Clockwork Orange. When he originally tried to get us to wear 
the makeup. You know, Ronson was like, oh, being from the north, what bloody going to do with that to me? I'm not wearing that. <laughs> I, think, you know, I think he was ready to go back to Hull when Bowie mentioned that. But we wore it not as a glam rocky type thing. He wore it as a, as a, a like a theatre type makeup because he said if you don't wear makeup, your face won't stand out on stage. You know, you just won't you won't project enough as an individual. Yeah. You you just won't. You need to put something on. That's why actors wear makeup. You know, and of course then everybody else jumped on it and started wearing too much. The costumes were okay, you know, because we understood them. They were, they were of clockwork orange, but the, it was the. The makeup thing and all that was a bit, oh, not, you know, we're, we're supposed to be a hard rock band and all that. And then, of course, I had a full beard before that. Now I'm wearing this this makeup and stuff, you know. It was that was a bit strange. We got used to it very quickly, though. You know, I mean, we only wore it on stage, and it was all gone, and we were back to jeans and t-shirts. I think he stole a lot from other people, you know, like Iggy. He'd seen Iggy do it. He he, he did things that other, you know, like Jagger did. He he took bits from a lot of people, uh, and he used them for his stage show. I mean, he he didn't think anything of, of running out into the audience. He would just run out into the audience up the aisles and people would be in shock that he was standing next to them singing, you know. And it would work. They'd all stand up and go crazy, you know. He'd do anything to get them going, the audience. But he did get better and better at it. He turned himself into a real superstar singer. David's childhood friend, George Underwood, who went on to create some iconic artwork for David, was also at the Aylesbury gig and remembers the acts that inspired the Ziggy persona. I remember David actually citing Sid Barrett as being the first person he remembers seeing, uh, you know, with eye makeup on uh, in this country. Screaming Lord Such uh, and Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, all those semi-theatrical uh, rock and roll bands all had some kind of, you know, a theatrical makeup of some kind. Oh, sensational Alex Harvey. Now, David wasn't probably the first, but he was the first one to, to make popular music with it, if you like. He was always theatrical actor-like, so he's taken on this this character. He's probably sort of thinking about it for weeks and weeks and weeks. I've, I've got a feeling it didn't suddenly come out of nowhere. You know, suddenly, I reckon, with Freddie's... Uh, outfits because Angie as well as was involved there you know getting various uh, materials from liberties and da 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 standing in front of the mirror I can see David looking at himself thinking now what shall I call you you know uh, so I've got a feeling he's probably thought of that name Ziggy Stardust yeah that's a good one let's do that you know boom uh, David wanted to wear something which uh, you know caused someone to look at them twice rather than just the once, you know. Publicist Anya Wilson had been working with David promoting his music since Space Oddity and had seen how he had evolved over the years. And a short time prior to the Aylesbury concert, Anya recalls hearing David explain his new creation. We went to a Haddon Hall and uh, David told us the concept. And De Vries had told us the concept too. So it wasn't sort of like, it's something we learned to live with. Um, as right. opposed to sort of one big, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And it came it came with, with various songs. We were all working other stuff, so then we would have meetings with David. That's where he, he gave us the, the lowdown on what, it, on what it was. And he was so inspired, and it was, it was amazing. And he was, he was recording songs into his little recording thing there. And uh, Mick and, and the boys were living there at that time. So it was just a very creative atmosphere. And what, what he would do was um, he would call us all in the morning 
and ask us, a, a certain team of us, what we thought of the gig. He was looking for critiques. He was very, very good like that. And uh, I think it, you know, it started off a little clumsily. And then it, then it was, oh, as they all got confidence, it was, it was a second to none performance. One of the most powerful performances I've seen. I mean, also, it's a musical uh, comfort as well, because Mick had been with him. Mick and Woody had been with him since Man Who Sold the World. So they had sort of gelled into the perfect relationship where creation and music are concerned. And I think Mick, uh, they developed another sound for this. And so that has the identity um, of Ziggy as well. But I, when I really got the to know the songs, it wasn't the full, the full-fledged songs I got to listen to in the studio. I was inspired by them because we'd had we'd had changes at radio, so it was it was a breakthrough of sorts. And by that time, we'd had time to sort of wind the media up, and I think they were ready. He was he was always changing. I mean, he was always up for change, which is one, of, and I think that's very rare in an artist. Everything that David did was was another step in a different direction. I mean, he loved Jacques Brel. He loved. Uh, he had a he, he had a huge capacity to to absorb. And Andy Warhol, he was fascinated by him, and he was fascinated by how the family worked. He was very into into the mime, and well, he was he was he was very theatrical. He had a huge sense of theatre. I mean, that was what he did. He was he was always in plays before he uh, he sort of well plays and music. But acting was was a big passion of his. Annie Wilson, George Underwood, Trevor Boulder, Woody Woodmansey and Tony DeFries all recalling the first public performance of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars at Friars Club in Aylesbury in January 1972. There are some great pieces of Main Man archive referencing that gig that are available on the Main Man label website. It's part of an ever-growing collection of Main Man documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, a lot of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.